text. If you've got a Bible, go to 1 Thessalonians 4. If you have a physical copy or digital copy, uh, that's fine. Open it up, turn it on. It'll be on the screens for you as well. But we're in uh, week four of this series that we're calling Not Without Hope. We've been walking our way through uh, Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to uh, the church at Thessalonica. And uh, really the big idea of the series, something we've said every single week is this, that Jesus is the source of enduring hope. That Jesus is the source of enduring hope. The reason we go into the world, the reason we fly across, right, on planes and spend money to go uh, other places and take vacation time to go other places and serve rather than be served is because we believe Jesus is the source of enduring hope. And he's the only way to the Father. That he's the only way to have life and joy. And what we've said every single week is, look, if, if our hope, if your hope for the future if your hope for joy in this life or in the life after is attached, tethered to anything or anyone other than Christ, you're going to find that ultimately that will disappoint. Somebody else can't save you. Your career can't save you and fulfill you. Spouses are great. They're wonderful gifts from the Lord. But if you ask your spouse to be a functional savior for you, you're going to find they cannot do that. They were not designed to do that. Your children if you have children, they're wonderful gifts, but they cannot be gods to you. You will crush them, and they will ultimately disappoint you. But when your hope is tethered to Jesus, when it's tied to his unchanging character and his finished work at the cross, you find, because that work is already finished, he already died and rose again, that we might have new life in him. And he, though everything else changes, he remains the same. When our hope is tethered to him, we find that it's a hope that endures and it's a hope that causes us to endure. It's a hope that lasts through the, the deepest and darkest valleys. It's a hope that endures through the greatest amount of suffering and pain and just the bad chapters of our lives. And it's not only a hope that lasts, it's a hope that causes us to last. That's one of the things that Paul praised the Thessalonians for is he said, guys, you've got this hope in Christ that's steadfast, it causes you guys to endure in the midst of suffering because you've got your eyes fixed on the one who already suffered for you and rose again. Jesus is the source of enduring hope. That's what I want for all of us here. We've had some folks, and I'm so grateful for the honesty. We've had some folks throughout the course of this series who have come to us and just said, honestly, I don't have any hope. My life feels and looks hopeless. And we so appreciate the honesty and also we hope and we pray that that changes during the course of the series and in the days ahead that you will tether that hope to Christ, that you'll find hope in Christ and say, you know what? We'll be able to sing with the song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. As the song goes on, life is worth the living just because my Savior lives. My Savior lives. First Thessalonians 4. Starting in verse 9, I will say verses 1 through 8, Paul talks through, hey, he says, we want you to get, live holy lives under the Lord. He talks about sexual immorality and sexual ethics and the Christian life. And the reason we're not covering that this morning is because we covered that at length in the series on 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. So back at the end of August and September, we went through a series called Asking for a Friend. And I would encourage you to go back on the messages section of our website and you can pull up all those messages. We went through 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 and we addressed as as Paul addressed it, uh, just sexual ethics and the Christian life and what do the scriptures teach about these things. So that's why we're not covering verses one through eight as much today. So starting in verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, 
This is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians. He says, concerning brotherly, family, sisterly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to just jot down 9 and 10 and then 11 and 12 because they're certainly related, but they do emphasize. Paul is emphasizing two different things here. In verse 9 and 10, he's emphasizing relationships between Christians. What should mark the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ? And the hint is in the fact that we are brothers and sisters. And then in 11 and 12, he sort of pivots to talk about really our witness toward outsiders. So, so what should mark the relationship of us towards outsiders. And as I thought about these two things and the fact that Paul's addressing both of them simultaneously, I I think Paul is holding in tension here two things that are two of our five core values. And I think it's important for us just to highlight. So we have five core values here. Gospel identity, we use the acronym GRASP. Gospel identity, reaching priority, authentic community, spiritual intimacy, and personal ministry. Paul highlighted two of them right there. Reaching priority and authentic community. As he talks about the relationship between the church, that's authentic community. We are family. Paul says, you guys are brothers and sisters. Those who formerly did not know each other and had perhaps no relationship to each other have by the blood of Christ been brought into relationship with one another. You're now brothers and sisters. We're family. But he also says, right, we ought to order our lives in such a way that we are thinking. If you caught there in verse 12, he says, the whole purpose of the reason I'm telling you guys to live quietly and work with your hands and and basically be good citizens is so that you walk properly before outsiders. Another way of translating that, some translations say that you might win the respect of outsiders. The whole idea, when you, when you put that in context and you think about who the Apostle Paul is and what his whole life and ministry was about, he's saying, guys, Jesus is so worthy. I want you to live your life in such a way that people look in and they see the worthiness of Jesus through the way you handle your affairs. To order your life in such a way that you want to you point people to Christ. So he's holding these things. And these are things for us to be a healthy church. We've got to hold on to both of those things and live out both of those values because the tendency is to lean one way or the other. The tendency for a believer, for a church is to lean, hey, we're gonna be all about loving each other, brothers and sisters. Maybe we don't have time for those outside, right? We love our groups and we love the security and the safety of the Christian relationships and the world outside is scary and we lose, we lose sight of the fact that man, we're missionaries. Yes, some of us may be called to cross-cultural, global mission field. All of us are called to reach those that God puts within our sphere of influence. We're missionaries too. We can lean the other way though, where you can say, look, brother, sister, I see you over there. I know you're hurting, but we don't have time for that because we gotta, we gotta be about the mission. It's about reaching people. And suddenly you lose. Yeah, but I think we're supposed to care for one another too. <laughs> and those things aren't contradictory. They're complementary. Hold on to both. But it's a tension, is it not? We feel this tension, I think, in our life groups, right? Life groups exist so that we can live out authentic community and build a relationship with one another. But then what happens? One day you look around, you go, our group's really big. We need to multiply our group. But I just got come. We just got right to know everyone. But it's, guys, if we don't multiply, 
Hey, there's someone else. Remember the time that you stepped into this group and you were brand new and you didn't know anyone and you didn't have a relationship? Or maybe you just started your walk with Jesus and you're like, how do I learn how to do this? Then if we don't multiply, there won't be a group for the next person that God brings into the family. It's a, and it's a real tension. I feel it. I get it. But it's living out that authentic community and reaching priority at the same time. It's at the campus level, we feel it. We prayed here right, last March for 75 folks, about 75 who ended up going up to Marion to launch LifePoint in Marion. And I, I miss Paul. Matt, Paul and Maddie are Morgan, some of Morgan and I's best friends, but we can't cling. Some of you have relationships with the folks who we sent out to Marion. You may miss them and you don't get to see them as much. And at the same time, we're saying, hey, we're brothers and sisters, but also we're missionaries. We have to reach those who are lost and hold these two things in tension. Now, Paul addresses the authentic community first. Verse 9 and 10 is about this brotherly love. And this is so good. I was reading this week. That phrase, right? It's two Greek words kind of smushed together as far as I understand. And it's where we get Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, right? These two Greek words, the city of brotherly love. It's two words that mean love and family, basically. Brother, sister. And, and the commentator was saying, Greeks and Jews who use that word in the time of the New Testament, in the time of the early church, they never used it of religious groups. They always used it of families, blood-related families, which I think lends the potency to the fact that the New Testament authors take that word and they apply it to the church always. They always use it to talk about the church because they're saying, hey guys, we're not like family, we are family. And we're blood-related in a different way through the blood of Christ. His death and his resurrection, we've been made new people and new. We're sons and daughters of God and therefore brothers and sisters to one another. And we're to love each other like that. And so Paul looks at the Thessalonians and he says, guys, to be honest, you don't need me to write much about this. You guys are doing this. You're already doing this. I've asked us as a church, will you pray that with me, that God will make us that kind of church? that loves one another, that if the Apostle Paul wrote to us, he'd be like, honestly, just keep going. <laughs> That's what he tells the Thessalonians. He says, I have no really reason, you don't need me to write to you about this because you're already taught by God. The, the phrasing there is literally God taught. They've been taught by God. They already are living this out and loving each other. Holy Spirit empowered, Christ-like sacrificial love for one another. I think the reason Paul says, you guys have been taught by God. You're like, why does he say? Because obviously they were taught by Paul and the other disciples. I think Paul's looking back to the Old Testament, where in the Old Testament, consistently there was this message about, hey, someday God's gonna send someone who's gonna usher in a new covenant. And it's not gonna be like the old covenant that had the law and tablets of stone that we had to read and say, okay, try to follow them. They say in this new covenant, in this new relationship, God's gonna put the law in your hearts. Jeremiah 31 is the most probably famous example of this where the prophet says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He says, they broke that one, right? Putting it on laws of stone, it didn't get into the heart. He says, when this new covenant comes, I'm gonna put my Holy Spirit inside of you. I'm gonna write the law on your hearts and you're gonna live this out. And then Jesus comes and that's exactly what he does. Do you remember when Jesus gathered the disciples at the last supper, what did he tell them? He says, this cup, it's the new covenant in what? In my blood. 
as my blood is shed for you and my body is broken for you, I'm ushering in the new covenant Jeremiah 31 talked about. And now the Holy Spirit's gonna come on you and the God is gonna live inside of you and put the law in your hearts so that you guys love him and you love one another and it fulfills the law. In fact, Jesus, this is so important that Jesus said, this is what will mark the church. He gathered his disciples again in John 13 and said this, a new command I give you, love one another. If you don't do anything else, right, love one another. And get this, right, because this is the gospel right here. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why do we love one another? Because God first loved us. He gave his only son who gave his very life that we might have new life in him. So he says, just as God, as Jesus left heaven, came to earth, put you, right, laid down, right, his glory to come here and die on a cross for you. I want you to love each other that way. Just as Jesus put on a towel and washed the feet of his disciples, even though he was their superior in every way, he says, I want you to take that kind of mindset towards each other. Love one another. And then he goes on in 35 and says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Church, Jesus looked at his disciples and by extension to us and said, you know what will mark you to the outside world? You know what, what your community should look in and say about you and see about you? Not ultimately your doctrinal statements, though those are good. Not even your acts of service to the community, though those are good and necessary. Not your great worship services. Man, the music was great, or the preaching was great, or the kids program is great. He says, what's gonna mark you, right? When the outside world looks in, the thing that they should really see about these Jesus followers is your, our love for one another. One of my, I don't know if it was, pride, like proudest moments as a church or happiest moments or as a, as a pastor uh, was a few number of months ago, a widow in our church came to me and uh, she had lost her husband a number of months before. And, um, and I was just asking her, you know, how are you doing? And she said, right, it, it's, it's hard. Like it impacts every area of your life. But something that she said that was such a wonderful moment for me as a pastor, she said, but Kale, the way that this church has practically tripped over itself to try to love me and my family and support us during this time. That was such an encouragement to her. And that phrase, right, the way that this church has practically tripped over itself, I thought, I think, I hope we trip over ourselves a lot. I hope that we consistently love one another that way. And listen, church, to do that, it requires that we slow down that we slow down and we pay attention to one another's needs and one another's hurts and one another's burdens and not assume when you see someone in your life group, right? As you open your ears and you listen and you hear, man, it seems like they're not doing, seems like he's not doing, seems like she's not doing well, but you just assume, well, someone else will probably ask. Don't assume that. We need to step up and say, Lord, maybe you've placed me here for this moment. I, I was driving home last week and I saw a guy that I knew kind of coming down the sidewalk and I was parking at my house and I'm be real honest here, right? My first thought was, I'm like, I'm pretty sure he needs help and I don't have time for this. 
That was my first, I was like, Lord, I'll, I literally prayed, as, as silly as it sounds, like, Lord, just help him. <laughs> and I felt like the Lord was kind of like, you're here, you know, like you help him, right? And, and obviously through, but, but my, I mean, there was a real tension there of like, I have a meeting I'm supposed to be at in 25 minutes and I'm assuming you feel this too. I have to be here. No, we need to be obedient. And maybe here can wait. And so I thank God, right? Pause and just talk with the gentleman for a bit. Got a chance to pray with him. I don't know what'll come out of it, but I, those are the moments where we say, guys, we have to bear one another's burdens and bearing other people's burdens is uncomfortable and it's time costly. It doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen easily. But when we embrace the way that Christ loved us and say, man, he gave his life for me, then we say, I'll give my life for my brothers and sisters and for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now that's for the sake of the kingdom of God, not just for the brothers and sisters, but then thinking about, okay, Lord, right? There are those outside of the faith and part of our loving one another is meant to give a witness and a platform for saying, hey, as you look at us and you see this love and that's attractive to you, what is that about you? It's Christ in us. And so Paul in verses 11 and 12 kind of continues with this theme, even though he pivots a little bit to say, okay, think about outsiders. And he gives some very practical instructions here. He says, I wanna urge you guys, first at the end of 10, he says, I wanna urge you to love more and more. Literal, the literal phrasing is to love excessively. Love each other ridiculously in a way that's not natural, that's supernatural. So that people look in and they're like, what's going on there? And he goes on and says this, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I want you to circle, right? So, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Circle that because everything that Paul says here is leading up to, he says, I don't want you to be dependent on other people. I don't want you, not in a healthy Christian, we're interdependent of one another, but in the like, literally I'm just taking and taking advantage of those around me. Paul's saying, I want you to order your life in such a way that you walk properly before those who are not believers so that the gospel does not come into disrepute. I want you to order your life and think about your life and live your life in such a way. One translation says, though, that you might win respect of those on the outside of the faith, that they look in and say, and the way you guys live your lives, that, that's attractive to me. It's very important as you look at each of those things to put it in its context. Because otherwise, it, Dean and I were talking about this week, our lead pastor and I were commenting on it. We said, man, the, the text, if you rip it out of its context and you don't see it in Paul's pastoral evangelistic love and focus, it almost just seems like the parent who's wagging their finger at the 28-year-old still living in the basement, right? Like, work with your own hands and might, you know, take care of your own business and don't be dependent on other people. That's not what Paul's saying. There's a little bit of that, but just to walk through it, he says, first, live a quiet life. Aspire to live a quiet life. What a strange phrase. <laughs> Aspire to live quiet. Paul, now he's not saying, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down. No, Paul was bold, shared the gospel, wants us to do it as well. But I do think Paul is saying, man, the point of our lives is not look at me. It's look at him. And the point of our lives as Christians is not, let's go make waves for the sake of making waves. Let's go be contentious and cantankerous and stir up a lot of dissension over politics and our opinions on random stuff. No, I think Paul would say, let the gospel do the offending. The gospel is offensive. 
When you come to people and say, hey, the problem of your life, of my life, of our life, is our sin. Our relationship with God is broken. We are sinners in desperate need of a savior. You can't fix yourself. And your only hope to be forgiven before a holy and just God is by trusting his son, Jesus, who came, died, and rose again for you. That's really good news. And it's really offensive. Because it basically tells us, hey, there's a real problem inside of your soul. And you can't, you can't fix it. You need to humble yourself and repent. And it's great news because God loved you enough. He's done something about it. And it can offend. And so I think Paul is saying, when you look at here and the overall overarching message of Paul, it's, man, let's let the gospel make the waves and live lives where it's taking care of our own stuff and saying, if you look at me, I want you to see Christ. He says, mind your own affairs, right? Take care of your own business. As he'll say, work hard, right? Provide for yourself and for your family. Mind your own business, which sounds harsh in some ways, but I mean, it is a good reminder. And some of us probably need to hear this this morning, right? Gossip, an unhealthy appetite for conflict, right? Like you you see, you hear conflict and you're kind of like, slide into that, right? Tell me what's going on here. Let me read to you Proverbs 26, 17. Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is the person who rushes into a quarrel or an argument, not their own. Proverbs 26, 17. Isn't that a wonderful illustration? (laughs) He says, look, when you hear that, the whispering, and you see the conflict and you're drawn to that, and first I would say, check your heart and ask, why are you drawn? Like, why are... Lord, what's this unhealthy appetite for conflict? But secondly, he says to put yourself into others' business where it's like, man, you have no reason to be here. He says it's like grabbing a stray dog by the ears. I've never tried that, but it sounds like a horrible idea. (laughs) You're going to get taken for a ride. You'll probably get bit and it will not be pleasant. And that's what the Proverbs are telling us. He says, man, like, Look at your life. Doesn't mean you don't have a concern for others. Doesn't mean you don't have genuine care for others. We just talked about that. But it does mean, Lord, I'm trying to take care of my own business and be someone who, as he's going to say next, can really be a giver and not a taker. That's what he says next, right? Like, be, work with your own hands. And Paul's not saying, if you're like, I have a desk job, Cale. Do I need to quit and become a mechanic? Like, a mechanic? No. no. Paul's just saying, like, if, you, if it's appropriate to have a job, Take care of your own things. Be able to provide for yourself. Some commentators speculate that the Thessalonians, maybe some of them, and he has to address it actually in 2 Thessalonians. Some of them uh, are just becoming idle. I don't know if they thought like Jesus is going to return right away, so they just stopped working. But what happened was they start taking advantage of the generosity of others. And it brings the church and ultimately the gospel message into disrepute. Because those on the outside are looking in going, man, it seems like you guys are kind of taking advantage of each other. So let me be real clear on something. Some of us, every single one of us, will go through rough seasons and rough patches and we'll need one another. You, you'll, we'll be in need relationally, spiritually, and sometimes financially. We have people in our church, and I'm so glad we do this as a church, set aside money to help. We've, we've been able to pay people's bills at times because they say, man, I, I was working hard and then this happened. Tragedy struck and we walked through that process with them and the goal is to work back to a place of self-sustainability. But look, rough patches happen and Paul's not knocking on someone because, hey, you have, you're in need. If you're in need, ask. But don't take advantage because when a rough patch becomes a pattern, 
that's when it becomes a problem. And so if it comes to the place where, man, I'm just taking advantage of the generosity of others, Paul would say, man, that doesn't fit a life following Jesus. Christ gave to us, and as Kevin said earlier, out of what we've received, we want to give to others. And so Paul is saying, man, live your life in such a way as you love one another and as you take care of your job, your family, your house, your apartment, you go about your work life, you handle your finances, your time. He says, do it in such a way where you are giving to others, not taking, where you're walking properly before those who don't know and love Jesus so that they can look in and say, man, there's something attractive about your life, about this community. What is it? What is it? And we get a chance to say, look, if there's anything great you see in us, it's not about us. It's about him. If there's anything good you see in my life or in the life of this people, it's not because we're really good people. It's because we serve a really good God. We've been saved by a really good God. And so two things. One, for some of us, an appropriate response this morning is conviction followed by repentance, confession and repentance. Some of us, if we're honest, you're saying, Kale, the idea that I would be looking at my time and my decisions and how I handle my life and I'm thinking about the outsider, I'm thinking about the kingdom of God, I'm thinking about, Lord, I wanna do all of this in such a way that as people look in, they see you. That's just not even been on the radar, if you're honest. Some of us would say, yeah, Kale, that's where I am. As I'm thinking about my life, my grid for decision-making does not include kingdom first. I want people to look in and I'm making these decisions saying, Lord, is my life building a good witness? Evangelism one day at a time through my words and through my actions. And so for some of us, as we pray here in a moment, just take the time to repent and ask forgiveness and say, Lord, I need to make a change and I need to reprioritize. Because you tell me to do these good works so that others can see and glorify my Father in heaven. And then if you're here today, second thing, if you're here today and you don't know and love Jesus, we're thrilled that you're here. And maybe, just maybe, you're here today on the invitation of someone in your life and you've looked at their life and said something about their life is attractive. Something about their life is intriguing to me. Maybe you came in this morning and you experienced it and you're like, I don't even know why, but I like these people. They seem joyful. I hope that's the case. And if it is, I'll just reiterate, if you see something good in us, it's not because we're really great people. We're sinners like everyone else, but we have been saved, loved and forgiven by a really great God. And as he loves us, we try to love one another. And we would love nothing more than for you, if that's where you are today, for you to experience that love firsthand and to know that God personally. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray uh, for those of us here today who know you and who love you, but uh, God, when I talked about prioritizing our lives, when the word says, live your life in such a way, take care of your own affairs, mind your own business, work hard with your hands, Live quietly so that you might walk properly before outsiders. God, for some of us, that gospel concern, that witness concern is just not there. And God, we ask forgiveness. 
We ask that you would help us to change and to put Christ first. If that's you, I just want to give you a moment to pray. Whether you're in that spot or whether something else today spoke to you, take a moment and just speak that back to the Lord and pray. Father, as we pray, I ask that you would make us that kind of church increasingly that is known for the way in which we love one another. Help us to slow down, to take the time to see one another's needs and burdens and to bear them in love. And Father, I pray for those who are here this morning. And if this is you, I'd invite you just to pray with me if you're ready. If you're here today and you say, I don't, I do not have a relationship with Jesus. The scriptures say that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If today you're ready to turn from your sin, to leave the old life behind and to start anew in Christ, to believe that he really is the son of God who died and rose again, I'd invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And today I turn away from that sin. I trust you with my life. I believe Jesus that you died to pay for my sin and you rose again that I might have new life. And today I commit my life to you. Jesus, I ask for forgiveness, And I ask that from this day forward, you would walk with me and I with you and that my life would be about you and you alone. Father, we love you. We thank you that you continue to save. And when everything else changes, you remain the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.